was credited to him for righteousness. And Paul says Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, so he's the father of the Gentile believers, and he believed God after he was circumcised. He's the father of Jewish believers. He's the father of all Christians. Abraham was a sinner when he was justified. He wasn't justified because he was righteous. He was justified while he was a sinner. That's why uh, Luther and, and other Protestants use this Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, at the same time righteous and sinner. Rome can't say that. Rome says you're righteous when you're no longer a sinner. And we say, no, I'm righteous right now. And, and therefore, I have confidence. That's how I go to sleep at night. So I'm going to object to that and say, not genuinely, but I'm going to object and say, well, you're saying justification is based upon something that's not true, right? That's a legal fiction. Yeah, that's the objection. Wrong. So God is going to declare you righteous, but you're not righteous, and so then God is unjust. Yeah, so the objection is that I, because I'm not intrinsically righteous, God can't actually call me righteous. And there's a couple of responses to that. The first one is somebody forgot to tell God because he spoke reality into existence. Fair enough. <laughs> right? In the beginning, God and nothing. Right? You understand that? In the beginning, God and nothing. And God said, let there be, and there was. So God has the power to speak reality into existence. Now, you and I can't do that, because you and I live in a created world. We just rearrange stuff. We don't actually create stuff. We talk about being creative, but we're not. We're being recreated. But before you get to the second part of the answer, I'm going to say, I don't buy it, Scott, because God would not do something contradictory. He wouldn't declare yeah. someone righteous who isn't based upon... Nothing. Well, see, when he speaks like that, he's, he is guilty of, of um, an error. It's called rationalism. He knows what the answer has to be before we've ever looked at the evidence. He's, so he's decided ahead of time when he speaks like that, that he's, uh, how things have to come out. Uh, there's, a, there's a Latin phrase for that. It's called an a priori. Right? He knows what has to be before he ever looks at the evidence. Uh, the evidence is different. Um, and the reason, he, the reason people say that is they decided that, well, this is the nature of righteousness. They didn't actually infer the nature of righteousness from Scripture. They inferred the, the nature of righteousness from, in a sense, from reason. Uh, the second part of the answer is I have an actual righteousness. My Roman Catholic neighbor, who, I actually had this conversation a few years ago. She came to the door. She wanted me to come uh, with her to church, so I started asking her some questions, and I I asked her, you know, how was she right before God? And she said, well, grace, cooperation with grace. And I said, yeah, but even your cooperation is not perfect. And she says, that's true. And she essentially said, I am trusting that God is crediting to me. Uh, he's imputing, crediting perfection to my best efforts. And I said to her, I'm trusting in the perfect, actual perfect righteousness of Jesus, which has been credited to me. So my Roman Catholic neighbor it doesn't actually have perfect righteousness, and if she's honest, she knows that. Her own intrinsic righteousness is not perfect, and, and even her best efforts are not perfect. I'm resting on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's it really is inherently, intrinsically perfect. I'm going to give you two words. You may or may not remember this, but maybe you'll remember the concepts. First word is condign. Second word is congruent. First word is condign. It's con, dine is the first part of dignity. 
right? Condine is, means inherently worthy. And Rome says there's two kinds or two aspects of merit. Condine merit, condine righteousness, and congruent righteousness. Congruent means by agreement or by covenant. And Rome says we have, we have our own condign righteousness by grace and cooperation with grace, and we also have congruent righteousness or merit, uh, whereby God has covenanted or agreed to impute perfection to our best efforts. And we deny both of those. The only, but we do say Jesus had condign righteousness or condign merit. His obedience, his righteousness is perfect. He kept the law every single day of his life, not for himself, not for himself. This is very important. He didn't have to qualify himself. He was born qualified. He was born under the law, Paul says, for us. And, and the difference between a, 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 an evangelical Protestant, a real old-fashioned evangelical Protestant, not what we always mean by it today, but I mean in the 16th century Reformation sense, 17th century sense, and a Romanist uh, is really down to two words. For Rome and for all people who think they're right with God by obedience, it's all about in me. For a real Protestant, it's all about for me. Martin Luther used to say to people, learn to say, for me. You have to say that, for me. Christ came for me, in my place, as my substitute. He obeyed for me. He was righteous for me. You have to say that over and over again. That's the basis of your assurance. Because when you look in the mirror in the morning or at night, especially at night, and you're tired, and you're being, if you're being honest with yourself, and you realize what a crud you've been, you men, how horrible you've been to your wives, or you parents, how horrible you've been to your children, your children, how wretched you've been to your parents, right? And really, how stinky and nasty you really are. Honestly, right? Cut away all the niceness, all the veneer, the clean-cut lawn, the, the, the nice car, right? The, the good golf swing, whatever it is you think, right, makes you look good. You cut away all that rubbish, right? Because when they put you in that pine box, there's, that doesn't mean anything, right? Doesn't it, you can't, right? it's all nothing. What do you got? When you look in the mirror, what, how are you going to go to sleep that night? Eh, I did all right. And the law says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything which is written in the book of the law. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. You've got to have a perfect righteousness. And Jesus said one word. You've probably heard this word a few, a few hundred times. Tetelestai. It is finished. Rome says, they, they really actually say this. Well, what that means is he made a good beginning. He, he initiated, he inaugurated, but he didn't finish. But Jesus said, it is finished. Do you see the difference? So the, the short answer to the question, I know it was a long answer to a short question. We have actual, perfect, condign, real, intrinsically worthy righteousness. Inherently worthy righteousness that's perfect, that's credited to us. It's not a fiction. When Jesus said, it is finished. When Jesus said, I have done all that you gave me to do. He's not making stuff up. He's not saying, I did my best. Not saying it's pretty much, it's mostly, right? 
Jesus isn't going into the Father's office and saying, like some of my students do to me, you know, I think you're being a little hard on me. Jesus went to the Father and he said, here it is. I did it. Right? Do you get that? Amen. We would say as Baptists. Amen. See, he would call us Baptists because he's Presbyterian. We don't call ourselves Baptists. But anyway. <laughs> super, super helpful. Um, let's come up for air for a moment and let me remind all of you. I'm going to put my pastor hat on. Just we're, we're so prone to be politically correct and we can't say anybody's wrong. And you might even be thinking, how can he say all this negative stuff about Rome? And that's not nice. And just remember that that between the Protestants and the Catholics, we're actually great sparring partners. And what I mean by that is we understand things far better because of the conflicts. Uh, hopefully we're not into conflict for conflict's sake, but that's how conflict can work. You can really have to grapple with what does the Bible actually say. And I'm, Therefore, I'm... having been justified, we have peace with God. It, it drives us to the Scripture, and it, we bo- can't both be right. So it's super helpful to know that there's a conflict, to learn from it, even though that's not the end game, right? The end game is to know what Jesus really did, um, but the conflicts are helpful. The Apostle Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 11 that conflicts in the church are necessary um, because there's, there's fruitfulness as a result to find out who's really on the team, so to speak. And so just keep that in mind. Um, we're not trying to be uh, just... M- you know, super mean-spirited or anti-Catholic or anything like that. But I'm a know church that, historian. You know, I live in the 16th, 17th centuries and, and before. So that's the world I live in is, are these discussions. Yeah, don't go egg anybody's house. Don't start screaming at anybody. But, but these are, these are ge- genuine discussions, right? And if anybody talks to you about some kids in 1973 throwing eggs at trucks over on Military Avenue at 3 in the morning. I don't know anything about it. (laughs) And remember also, it's helpful when we can look outside of ourselves even to learn about what we should believe. So if your your understanding of God comes from within you and you're making it up, well, you should be super offended if somebody criticizes you. We're talking about what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about Jesus and what he did? Jesus affirmed the Bible, so that's where we should go, not my internal feeling versus your internal feeling, because then it's all personal, so it can be helpful. Think about how much better we understand Jesus and the gospel because of the Pharisees, because of the Judaizers. If we didn't have the conflict in Galatia, the Galatia we wouldn't have the book of Galatians. If we wouldn't have the conflict with Paul with the Colossians, we wouldn't have the the book of Colossians, which is super amazing Christ-exalting. So just as a a reminder to you, let's shoot. Go ahead. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1, right? So that's what's at stake. Right. Is there still condemnation or isn't there? Right. And by in, Paul means united to, by grace alone, through faith alone, right. by God's free favor, which is, that's what he means by grace. Right. The, I, I always define grace, I, try, I have a dumb illustration. You came home late one night, don't do this, right? <laughs> this is just, right, just a story. This didn't actually happen to me. <laughs> Come home late one night, drunk as a skunk. You wreck your car, you wreck your neighbor's car, right? Blackout drunk, 
You wake up in the morning, and the neighbor not only replaces your car, replaces his car, and it gives you a million dollars. Because you're just, you're dead, right? You're thinking, I'm dead, right? My, I'm going to lose my license, I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to lose my car, I'm going to lose my house, my job. And the neighbor not only makes, not only replaces his car, which would be gracious, he replaces your car, and he gives him a million dollars. Why did he do that? That's grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. There's no relationship between what you did and what you received. That's grace. You say, how do I respond? Well, maybe you don't come home blackout drunk. You respond appropriately. How about you say, thank you? Right? How about you right, respond appropriately? So let's talk about that then. And let's pretend like you didn't just say that about response. Um, <laughs> it's good. I'm inviting you all now to think with me about an objection to Scott when it comes to if Christ's righteousness is credited to us, he fulfilled the law, he did everything right, he loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he loved his neighbor as himself, he then went and paid for all of our sins on the cross, work is done, it is finished, the question is, what's left to do? How do we respond? Yeah. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, right? you can read, you can almost divide Paul's epistles in half. First half is the you know, the law and the gospel, in other words, the greatness of our sin and misery, and the gospel, how we've been redeemed from all our sins and misery by God's free grace on the, you know, on the basis of Christ's righteousness for us, credited to us, the same spirit who brought us to new life, gave us true faith, united us to Christ through that instrument of faith by his grace, is at work in us, uh, sanctifying us. And that's why it's therefore. You can even see it in Exodus uh, chapter 20, right, where you see the Ten Commandments. Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the gospel. Therefore, and then you can, you can read it to say, you know, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. So it's, that, that's the nature of the... the, the here, I'm going to give you three G's. No, and here they already know because I always quote my okay. son Owen when he couldn't quite speak clearly. He would say guilt, right, waste, right. gratitude, gratitude. Right? There you go. That's, We're finishing each other's sentences. Yeah. It's amazing. That that is so so important, right? Our guilt, God's grace, and then in that grace, out of that grace, through that grace, by that grace, we respond. Not in order to present ourselves to God for righteousness, or even for salvation, but because we have received it, but because it's been given to us. We have been, uh, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, it says uh, uh, that uh, sanctification is the work of God's grace. God graciously works sanctification in us. And, and the fruit that Paul describes in, in, in Galatians 5 uh, is 
the product of that grace. So it's grace from beginning to end. It's hard when you're a like, recovering legalist, right? And you want to earn favor and you want to do and you want to merit and all of a sudden Christ has done it all and you would just want me to respond with worship? <laughs> yeah, it is hard. Uh, the Christian life is, is in two parts. Dying to sin, living to Christ. Uh, we used to talk about, in the old days, we used to talk about mortification, putting to death the old man, and vivification, being made alive. Uh, and that's, that's my daily prayer. Put to death in me the old man, make alive the new. So you can become a Christian? We are in the process of becoming Christians. But because you are a Christian, yeah. right? Not, to, not in order to be justified. That's right. right? Because I have been justified. Yeah. Um, and because I, I am still a sinner. And, I'm, and, I'm con- and you know, so you and I are constantly struggling with that. And the beautiful thing about you know, what your pastor's been saying to you is that you're free to be a sinner. Not in order to sin, but you don't have to pretend anymore. Hmm. And, and when you don't have to pretend anymore, then you can begin to really get to grips with what you are and, and put to death that... that that's good. That which plagues you. And by the way, you're never gonna get you're never gonna get it all figured out. You're never going to be perfectly righteous in this life. You're going to die with sins on your hands. So I jokingly said to some people walking in this morning, they looked happy, they looked well dressed. I said, Isn't it great we're all smiling even if we're not smiling on the inside? Sure. <laughs> it's what we do on Sundays. But I like what you're saying, Scott, as far as we can at least finally acknowledge we're still sinners and still struggling instead of pretending. That's what Luther meant when he said sin boldly. He wasn't saying go out and sin. He was saying recognize what you are. Quit pretending. Because that's, you know, that's the first step to really dealing with this honestly. And, and, and just accept. And you have to, it's a constant struggle, as Pastor says, to accept that you are justified. And to, and to trust that, that that declaration is true, not just for others, but for me also. Um, Again, the, the catechism that we use in our tradition is, uh, uh, has question 60, where it says, not only for others, uh, you know, but for me also. It actually uses that language. Uh, that's what faith does. It appropriates and trusts and rests in the promises, not in general, but specifically and personally, that Jesus accomplished all that righteousness for me. He carried the cross of Golgotha for me. He stood before Pilate for me. Um, He went in, now this is something to think about today. He was in the wilderness doing spiritual combat as the last Adam with Satan, doing combat with Satan for me. Not for himself, for me. Uh, You know, uh, Adam was in the garden. He He had the power, the ability to obey, and mysteriously he chose not to obey. It really is a great mystery. We'll never understand that. Because there wasn't anything wrong with him. He wasn't broken. He wasn't defective. He wasn't sinful. There wasn't anything in him. He didn't have concupiscence running around inside of him. Any of that. Still he sinned. Jesus, born of a virgin, right? Sinless, righteous. The last Adam, Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, goes out into the desert and meets the evil one face to face after 40 days of fasting. And he conquers him. The evil one offers him everything he offered to Adam. I will give you the world. Takes him to the high places, to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. 
takes him to the top of the temple and he says, jump off. And Jesus says, get behind me. I came to do the will of my Father. And we live in that righteousness, out of that righteousness, because we're united to him who, who obeyed for us in our place. So think in terms of practicality on a, on a one another level. What's the practical outcome of justification and understanding the finished work of Christ? Think in terms of if you are confident that God accepts you, therefore having been justified, you have peace with God, not based upon your perfect actions, but based upon the perfect, perfect actions of Jesus. Now think about how you can look at other people, right? The people in this room who sin and sin against you and you know aren't perfect. Well, if I'm enjoying emotional peace because I have positional peace with God, well, I could be forgiving toward others. And I could be patient toward others because God has accepted them also, not based upon their perfection, because we know they're not perfect, but because of Christ. It, it, it allows us a real basis to get along with each other and to be accepting and to be patient. It's pretty amazing. We're going to shift gears a little bit, Scott. We, we've, we've picked on one, one group. We're going to pick on evangelicals now, okay? So I, I can tell you're pretty excited about that. I was taught, Scott, when I shortly after coming to faith in Christ, that justification uh, means just as if I never sinned. And I think more than likely a lot of people in this room who maybe even teach others know that justification, no, wink, wink, know that justification means just as if I never sinned. Yeah, I've been, I mean, I've been chipping away at that this morning uh, implicitly because it, uh, that's only partly true. It, because that refers to the absence of something. But w what, what I'm trying to suggest to you, and I'll, I'll say explicitly, is that there's more because all that Jesus did for you, all that he did for you, was credited to you. You are positively righteous. So if you, if you think in mathematical terms, it's not just that the deficit has been filled and now you have to add to it, which some people have said, it's not just that the deficit has been, has been filled and now you get to add to it by grace and cooperation with grace. No, the deficit has been filled and you are now, more than that, positively righteous. Right. So that God looks at you as if you had yourself personally accomplished everything that Jesus did. There's nothing left for you to do to commend yourself to God. Nothing. You can't commend yourself to God. Don't try. It's not possible. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's part of what he was saying. I did it all. And all that I did is, is yours. You received that by grace alone. Again, by favor, God's free favor for Christ's sake, through faith alone. So it's not just just as if I never sinned. It's just as if I never sinned and just as if I perfectly did everything right. Just as if I did everything that Jesus did for me. Doesn't, that, doesn't quite have a ring to it. But. No, it, it's, it, it's not as, as marketable, but it's truer. Good, good. How about if I'm new to all this conversation, I want to learn more, so I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read Romans learning about justification, Galatians, what else can I turn to that would be helpful? Not scholastic. Yeah, not yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mentioned this little document, the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm a big fan. It's very, very clear. It's, it's written for God's people. It's not an academic document. Um, you might not agree with everything that's in it, but on, on these things, on uh, you know, the, the first uh, 21 questions are very, very good. 21 is the definition of faith. And it just walks you through by questions and answers the gospel, right? And then uh, particularly uh, questions 54, 55, you know, 56 is a very good one, through 60, 61, very good stuff on, on justification, on law, what the law is, God says do this and live, and what the gospel is, Christ has done for you. Those two different words, those two distinct words of God's, um, what faith is, what grace is, how, uh, and then how you live in, in response to that. Uh, it actually has an, an ex, a brief exposition of the Ten Commandments, how Christians then live their lives in response to that grace. So it's, that's where we get, uh, was it guilt, grace, and gratitude? Perfect. It, it, it comes from, the, it actually comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. That's where those G's come from. And we utilize the Kevin DeYoung book that's based upon the Heidelberg. Mm-hmm. So I know our high schoolers are familiar with it and others as well. Threats to justification in the 21st century in academia, but don't overwhelm us uh, on your side of things. And then maybe your perspective from a layperson's view. What what are the big challenges that we're dealing with? on, On the academic side, there are two movements academic and ecclesiastical side, there are two movements. In New Testament scholarship, there is a movement to say, you know, we really didn't understand the rabbis very well. They, they set up this uh, straw man which says, well, traditionally, we didn't think that the rabbis believed in grace. Turns out the rabbis believed in grace, and so our whole understanding of Paul needs to be reevaluated. And the problem is, it's a straw man. Uh, we, we knew the rabbis believed in grace, and, and as it turns out, the Apostle Paul... Um, uh, actually addressed what we what we today call the new perspective on Paul, uh, and, and what the new perspective guys typically don't know because they're not usually historians is that what they're teaching is very close to what the medieval church ended up saying. So there's not new at all. If you know church history, then there's nothing new about the new perspective. So that's a challenge. But people, young people particularly, are taken with this because some of the pro- proponents, uh, particularly Tom Wright. Uh, 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 Bishop of Durham, I think. Um, you might know him as N.T. Wright. N.T. Tom Wright. Um, Tom Wright is um, a very winsome, articulate writer, and, and, and I find that particularly young men are attracted to him uh, because he's a little punchy, but, he, he, uh, but he's wrong about a great number of things. It's a purple uh, robe, maybe, that the men like? I don't know. <laughs> don't know. Uh, my, my buddy Mike Horton has written a book in response to, to uh, N.T. Wright. Uh, it's volume three of a series he did with Westminster John Knox Press in which, in my view, he took Tom out into the public square and de-pantsed him for the whole world to see. So you, if you're interested in academic stuff like that, you can, you can see that. The other movement that we're facing in, in my world, and, and maybe you'll run into it on, on the Internet, is a, th- is a movement called the Federal Vision, where people say you get in by baptism, you get into the covenant uh, by baptism, and you stay in by cooperation with grace, which is very, very similar to what the medieval church taught again. Uh, nothing new about that. The Reformed churches have condemned that uh, pretty consistently and officially. Um, 
you know, the, really the issues that we face now um, are not very different from, what, from the issues we've always faced. In the 17th century, uh, there was a fellow named Richard Baxter. You might know a volume called The Reformed Pastor. People just assume that Baxter was reformed. He wasn't. John Owen wrote an entire book to responding to Richard Baxter saying, this guy isn't teaching the gospel. Uh, Baxter's not a gospel man. He's a works man. I had to read Reformed Pastor in seminary and was told it was awesome. And, and there are some good things in there. There are some good practical things. But when it comes to the, what the gospel is, when it comes to what salvation is, what justification is, Baxter's not your man. He will not help you. By the way, and I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, Jonathan Edwards' doctrine of justification is very sketchy. And so you want to be very careful about Jonathan Edwards on justification. It's not entirely clear what he taught, which is not a commendation. The gospel's not that complicated. And if you can't, you know, my kids could articulate what the gospel was by the time they were seven years old. There's, there should be no ambiguity. There's a lot of ambiguity about Edwards on justification. So there are a lot of Edwardsian folks, a lot of young, restless, and reformed people think Edwards is, is uh, they used to say, the bee's knees. They think he's really cool, really he's, hip. He's my homeboy. He's my homeboy. Yeah, well, not on justification. And frankly, if you ask me, not on many other things. You have a t-shirt? Todd Swift has a t-shirt. Yeah. I think I gave it to him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll, get you, I'll get you a little kerosene. We'll take care of it. <laughs> so, but, you know, the, because folks are interested in Edwards and they're all excited about him, you know, they're not reading him very discerningly and they don't understand where necessarily he has some, he has led historically. So we face that, um, you know, there's always, whenever people start, uh, preaching the gospel clearly, there's almost always a reaction that says, well, that's not going to work. And, uh, and then, of course, there, when you start preaching the gospel, some people say, well, we can forget the response part. So you've got antinomianism. And whenever you have antinomianism, then you get neonomianism in reaction that says, well, people need to be good or God won't let them into heaven or God won't accept them. Antinomianism is no law. You can do whatever, do whatever you want. Let's party. Neonomianism is you've got to do these things for God to accept you. Both are wrong. Wearing a red tie. No, I just don't, so yeah. he would stand out. Yeah, I don't. He's an egomaniac. He wanted attention. <laughs> I'm just an uptight reformed guy. So I almost came like up till last night. I had my khakis, my boots, my tieless shirt. It was all ready to go. I, and I kid you not. This morning I got up at 5:30 and I thought I can't do it because <laughs> I'll anyway. Because he thought he'd lose his salvation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on the, and then that's the academic side. Everyday Christianity, I know you don't live in that world, you live in an ivory tower, but as you see it, what do we... I mean, when I'm, when I'm counseling with people, when I'm praying with people, meeting with them, you know, I, I think it's a constant struggle to accept the truth of the gospel. And we find ourselves constantly slipping into the mode of, you know... So you sinned and you know you sinned, right? You sinned, you know what you did, you know when you did it, you know why you did it, you like doing it, and your first thought is, crud, I'm toast. I get, now I have to do something to even the scales. You think that. I know you think that because I've had a conversation with you or people look just like you. And it's not true. You can't even the scales. What you do is you say, you get on your knees and you say, Father, I am a wretch. I'm disgusting by nature. I'm so thankful for the righteousness of Christ credited to me 
work in me by your Holy Spirit, put to death that thing that I just did, that I know I did. And work in me by your Spirit to conform me more and more to the image of Christ. By your grace. I accept your... The thing Satan does not want you to say is I accept your free favor and the righteousness of Christ. You have to do that every day. I accept your free favor and the righteousness of Christ, and I will not present myself to you on the basis of my performance in any way, ever. You have to die to that. That's a sin. So you sinned, and you know you sinned, and then you try to do something good to balance the cosmic scales because you think like a pagan. Right? That's a sin, too. You need to repent of that. Right? And your repentance is imperfect. You didn't repent sufficiently. So you need to repent of that. And your repentance for your repentance wasn't perfect. You see? It's never going to be works. You just have to accept the free grace of God in Christ and, and, and trust his Holy Spirit. And, you, you know, we do... There's lots of imperatives in Scripture. We have to follow those imperatives. We accept those gospel imperatives. To you know, put to death the old man, to live in Christ... Right. Out of gratitude. Those, those, out of gratitude. Yeah. In grace. In God's free favor. Anybody tells you those imperatives don't apply anymore, right? That's an antinomian. That person isn't, isn't being faithful to the word of God. Those imperatives are for us. But our standing isn't contingent on our performance of the imperatives. Justification. God declares you righteous, obedient to his commands, even though you're not. But it's not based upon nothing. It's based upon the finished work of Christ. And so I like to tell people, the more I understand this, the better I think the gospel is. The better you understand, the more clear you are on it, whether it's reading Romans or Galatians or hearing preaching about it, the, the better I think the gospel is. I, I'm, I'm justified, declared righteous. God's accepted me. I'm not trying to become acceptable. It's already done. It is finished. There's nothing that can bring... Assurance like that can. It really is glorious and awesome and worship-inducing, and it makes me want to obey. It's a delight, really. The new, you know, you've been made new, you've been, given, you've been given new life, been given true faith, and when you accept and receive that, you want to obey. Uh, even before the law says do, your heart, at least a little bit, sometimes says What? Right? What can I do? Bob Dylan, long time ago, Dylan did three you know, Christian records. And one of the songs, one of my favorite songs is, What Can I Do For You? I worked at the, I worked at, anybody from Lincoln, anybody remember KBHL? I worked at KBHL with Scott and Dewey. Um, in fact, if you listen to Office Hours, that big voice in the beginning of Office Hours, that's Dewey. Anyway, all right. So I, um, and I, we used to play that record on Saturday nights. Bob Dylan, um, and what can I do for you? That's a great, uh, he, that, you know what? That's where I begin to learn this stuff. Actually, stone cold dead, I stepped out of the womb. I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's See, I learned my theology from the who. That deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays a name <laughs> pinball. That's Ephesians chapter 2, You can man. tell how old we are. <laughs> so we, we're going to wrap things up. Um, what do you miss most about Nebraska? You come back every summer. Oh, I miss the people. I miss the food. First uh, restaurant you go to when you drive into Runza. Lincoln. We don't know. We don't. Are you kidding? <laughs> we don't wait till Lincoln. We stop in Holdridge on Highway 6. Where do you get at Runza? Hamburger. Best hamburger in the world. 
I've eaten hamburgers all over the place. I've had $10 hamburgers. I've in and out. Get out of here with in and out. You just offended a lot of people, but that's okay. My wife used to work at Runza. How about that? Oh, I love a Runza hamburger. My wife makes better Runzas than Runza, but the hamburgers are off the We know he needs Christ because now he's lying. (laughs) If you've ever met anybody who's like, well, my wife has a recipe and hers are even better, you're like, yeah, right. You need Jesus because I know you're lying. Her Runzas are so much better, but nobody makes a better hamburger than Runza. That's a serious. You people don't unappreciate. If you haven't tried to eat hamburger and barbecue, Fat Jacks down on Cornhusker and Lincoln, that is awesome barbecue. Californians don't have a clue. They think if they're standing outside, they're doing barbecue. <laughs> Go make a taco. Get out of here. <laughs> Good. So, there are a couple of resources you can tap into that I think you'll find helpful. Um, one is called Office Hours. It's on iTunes, or you can just go online. Office Hours is something that Scott hosts. Uh, it's super accessible. You do a great job with Office Hours. He interviews different theologians, different people at the seminary. Just did Ben Sass. Did just did interview ben with Ben Sass. Sass. Uh-huh. Nebraska State Senator. So, Senator so listen to Office Hours. Again, if you're thinking, this guy knows too much, he uses words that I don't understand, he tones it way down on office hours, okay? Super accessible. Um, I listen to it all the time. I'm kind of an audio junkie. So check that out. Also, Scott's, that's tied to the seminary, um, but he has a personal podcast called The Heidelcast, and you can listen to that as well. It's also on iTunes and, and other resources. So I've been benefited a lot from those. I think you will also. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for Jesus the one who is our righteousness. It is only because of him that we have confidence before you. Thank you that you loved us when we were not lovely, and you sent him here to redeem us, that he lived a perfect life of obedience, that he voluntarily went to the cross and experienced your just judgment that we deserve. Thank you that he was raised from the dead for our justification, as Paul says, and that he has ascended and even right now claims us as his own. And we're thankful to have such a perfect high priest as Jesus, and we're thankful to be able to discuss these things and think about these things. Uh, May you use your Holy Spirit to uh, make them real for us uh, and personal if they're not. Thank you for Scott. Thank you for his giftedness and for the way that you use him. We're thankful for today uh, at Omaha Bible Church. Uh, May you make much of yourself and encourage your people as we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.